I'd like to next introduce our speakers, Tony Dixon and Jan Burke, and they're both from the regional Region 2 of the Forest Service, headquartered in Denver. Did I get that right? All right. And Tony became Deputy Regional Forester of the Rocky Mountain Region in June 2008. He's responsible for assisting the Regional Forester Rick Cables to manage resources on 22 million acres of national forests, grassland, grasslands in Colorado and Wyoming, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Kansas. He's a 20-year employee of the Forest Service, was previously Forest Supervisor of the National Forest in Mississippi, headquartered in Jackson. And I was teasing him that this has got to be a dream assignment to be in the Rockies. I'm not saying anything about Mississippi, but they don't have mountains like we do. He also worked as a public affairs specialist in the Rocky Mountain Regional Office and was acting Forest Supervisor for the National Forest in Alabama. He has a bachelor's degree in marketing and forestry from Alabama A&M University and a master's degree in administration from Central Michigan University. In 2004, he was a senior executive fellow at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and has been certified as a senior, for senior executive service in 2010. He's a member of the Society of American Foresters and most important, he enjoys traveling, snowboarding, and golfing. Our second speaker is Jan Burke, and she is the, now the Forest Health Coordinator for the Rocky Mountain Region. And I just have to interspersed uh, that I've had a number of classes that Jan's been willing to go out in the, uh, the White River National Forest and share a day of her time showing us forests as we led up to this crisis that we're in now. And she's been very gracious to come back and share her time again. She began in 1985 in southern Utah, has worked as a forestry technician in the Dixie National Forest, was inspired to build a professional career with the Forest Service. She's also completed, a, and she has a Bachelor of Science degree in forest management at Colorado State University. She also has completed additional graduate work at CSU, Utah State, and Northern Arizona Universities. After 11 years working as district, a district forester, and Zone Timber Program Manager on the Arapaho National Forest. She accepted a position in the Rocky Mountain Regional Office and has also worked in Alaska, Wyoming, South Dakota, the Washington office, and Guinea, West Africa. So I'm not sure I see the connection between what we're having, but you'll tell us. And she now has the very challenging job of Forest Health Coordinator for the White River National Forest and will share with us some fascinating perspectives on this. And most important, her passions are bicycling, skiing, and green forests. And so she promised me she would not retire till we have green forests back in the White River National Forest. So please help me welcome our two speakers. Take us a minute to switch over. Bill Gates almost is. Uh, is this one? Okay. I think that's it. Yes. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Hecox, um, for inviting Jan Burke and myself to participate in the State of the Rockies. Uh, 
I think it's a great venue to discuss some of the issues that we're having to face when it comes to forest health. Uh, it's great that Colorado College has selected that for the topic this year. I think uh, most of us would have probably agree that um, our forests here are very important to our way of life in the West and uh, the state of affairs that we find our forest in right now probably is not uh, the most attractive thing for us and I think you all can recognize uh, the problematic nature of the health that we find our forest in and so I want to talk a little bit with you about that tonight. Dr. Hecox already talked about uh, the area that we cover. This is a five-state region including those states that he's already articulated to you. I guess one of the things I wanted to mention is that within that 22 million acres that we manage, we manage 17 national forests and seven grasslands. We have an annual budget of about $300 million. But in addition to that, I, I think that, you know, talking about our wilderness areas, as you can see, we have a significant amount of wilderness in this part of the country. And that really talks about how much solitude people are into. This is a highly recreated area. We have significant visitors that come to this part of the country. We have three of the top 10 most visited national forests in the country, which includes the White River National Forest, the Pike and San Isabel National Forest, and the Arapahoe National Forest in that particular order. We usually play host to about 32.5 million visitors per year, uh, but we don't just manage national forest. We're known for that for the most part, but we also manage our, our grasslands. So this part of the region, we go from the mountains to the prairies, and managing our grasslands are equally important. I have the privilege and honor of serving as the national grassland chair, and we have responsibilities for a significant amount of grassland right here in Colorado, 2.1 million acres of grassland, which is the largest in the nation, particularly in, of any other region. But I think this is uh, something that we need to talk about. The Rocky Mountain region has a number of challenges before us. Um, you know, I would urge all of us to think of our national forest as really like the backbone infrastructure to ecosystems. And when we think of ecosystems, I'm thinking of life-sustaining ecosystems. We provide, through our national forest, high-quality water as well as high-quality air, which are very important to us. But it's also important that we create resilient forestry uh, practices. We have a resilient forest, and that's going to take some active management on, on our parts to actually do that. Um, is one thing that I talk about a little bit in some discussions, and that's really uh, social license. Uh, we don't unilaterally manage the national forest. These are public lands that we have the stewardship responsibility to manage on your behalf. Uh, but we go through environmental analysis to make the decisions about the work that needs to be done, clearly through a scientific process. But then at the same time, our environmental analysis have a social component to it as well. And we need to engage our publics to make sure what our publics want us to do is what we're carrying out on the land, while balancing that with what we know as stewards of the land uh, to carry out those responsibilities. But <clears throat> here in the last few years, we've enjoyed a lot of uh, social license, if you will. I would say that that is recent. 
you know, we have a significant amount of congressional support as well as support for our communities. I think that's in large part because of all of the public involvement and collaboration that we have done over multiple years. But I think in addition to that, some conditions have happened on the ground that really cause all of us to rethink how we're managing our national forest. When you think about some of the more recent catastrophic wildfires that we've had, when you think about um, Buffalo Creek in 96, when you think about the Hayman Fire in 2002, and most recently, where it wasn't a significant amount of acreage on national forest system land, when you think about the Boulder Fire, which was uh, the four-mile fire, it causes us to say, are we managing these national forests properly? And what do we want our stewards, the Forest Service in this instance, to actually do to more effectively manage uh, those situations? I think what we're realizing now is that some of the decisions that we have made along uh, this path, you know, limits the decisions and the opportunities that we have today. And so we have to continue to work with each other, continue to be engaged so that we can make good informed decisions about how we move forward. I told you that we have a significant amount of visitors. When you talk, think about 32.5 million visitors, that is high volume. And it's one of our multiple use mandates. And what I want to do is really share with you several of those things that we're charged with doing here in recreation. The amenities part of the work that we deliver is critically important here to our economy uh, particularly. When you think about all the opportunities, the things that people come here to do, biking, hiking, snowboarding, uh, snowmobiles, uh, fishing, all of those things are uh, very important to us. It's an outdoor experience that we're all um, wanting to have on a regular basis. And when we're trying to manage, I, I mentioned early on about a $300 million budget. That $300 million budget goes for all of the work that we are charged with doing. And so when we have things come along like the bark beetle, and I'll get into that in uh, a different part of my presentation tonight, uh, we have to think about how do we balance all those things out and do we make trade-offs in dealing with those? We also have a significant role in uh, our energy resources, uh, whether that is the renewable market like wind and solar or some of the traditional things like coal, oil, and gas. We provide those opportunities on our national forest. And as we look for more domestic opportunities to provide our energy needs, I think it's going to be more and more prevalent and more important that we manage those resources in a way that we can meet that need and demand. But while doing this, we have a significant responsibility for protecting our wildlife. We engage in all kinds of collaborative efforts with state and local government, with other federal agencies like the Fish and Wildlife Service to ensure that we're doing the right thing by the wildlife on our national forest. We provide the habitat on national forest lands, and it's important that we manage in a way that we have a thriving population of wildlife. Uh, I can cite one recent example of the work that we're doing with uh, Colorado Department of Wildlife, DOW. You know, we recently all engaged in a collaborative effort to reintroduce lynx to this area. There's a significant lynx habitat on national forest system land. Uh, and we've been working uh, tirelessly on actually implementing that. Here recently, 
Colorado DOW announced that the reintroduction of links was successful. I think that is a real significant turn for us uh, that we were able to reintroduce that species and create a habitat that they can continue to repopulate and become more healthy. But we're not only just doing that, we're working <clears throat> on a number of fronts. Uh, I know you've probably heard about uh, the management of bighorn sheep and domestic sheep. Domestic sheep graze on National Forest System land, while at the same time we have interactions with bighorn sheep. And when they mix sometimes, it creates some problems for us, and they, they have uh, pathogens just that they pass between each other, and sometimes that is problematic to our bighorn sheep population. So we're working on all kind of fronts to deal with all type of wildlife, but it's, it's equally important to the other things that we do. Headwaters for western states. 30 million people get their water, municipal water, from the headwaters of Colorado. Over 13 other states benefit. 30 million people uh, rely on the water that's coming off of National Forest System land. And that's vitally important in that our climate and temperatures are changing, and much of that uh, headwater is managed through snowpack, our streams and rivers, and how we do that has a real impact on the flow of that. Can we retain it long enough so that we have the water available for not only our use, but for all these other places that are dependent on us? The quality and quantity of water that comes off the National Forest is a paramount responsibility for us, and we take that extremely serious. Um, I, I want to talk about one endeavor that we've engaged in that I think really is a model for what we're going to be doing down the road. I'm hoping that it will be. Uh, here recently we just signed an agreement with Denver Water, the largest uh, water provider in the state of Colorado. Uh, it was a $33 million agreement, 16.5 coming from Denver Water themselves and another 16.5 from the Forest Service to do watershed protection and enhancement. Uh, what this is going to allow us to do in leveraging and working in partnership with Denver Water is going to allow us to expedite and expand the work that we were going to do, but we can do it a lot quicker and we can do it on a much larger scale. They found it to be beneficial for the infrastructure that they manage uh, to engage in this endeavor as a proactive means because they recently had an example when you think about the Buffalo Creek Fire uh, where Strontia Springs Reservoir Right now, you know, we had that fire, and large fires with high intensity often uh, has a, a tendency to sterilize soil, to make uh, regrow of vegetation much more difficult. So what's happening is, still in that area today, we're having uh, soil erosion and sedimentation problems and debris runoff. And it's going into the Strontia Springs Reservoir, and they're having to drudge that out on a regular basis, and right now, the number that they have been quoted as saying the cost associated with that is nearly $40 million. So when you think about $16.5 million as a proactive means to create mitigation on the ground to stop that from happening again, it's actually more cost affordable to be more proactive, and that's why they're engaging in those kind of activities with us. And it's the first large type of uh, corporate contribution that we've had of that size to do work that fulfills our stewardship mission. And again, it was work that was needed, that had been identified by the Forest Service, 
but in conjunction and partnership with them, we found places where we had mutual benefit and we were able to engage into, in this process. And it's over a five-year period. I guess one interesting thing to note about that, and these are Denver Waters numbers, <clears throat> but the taxpayers over this five-year period, the total cost for the people receiving water and you know uh, their customers, it's a $27 commitment over uh, five years. Not each year, but over the whole five-year period, which is a pretty nominal cost to provide for protection and, and the water quality that we all expect. We, we don't want to just do it with water providers. Uh, Rick Cables, the regional forester who I work with as his deputy regional forester, I'm currently serving as the acting regional forester for the region. Rick Cables is really trying to do what we did. Where we, uh, he's on an acting assignment working at the national office um, to try to help us uh, scale up this same thing that we did with Denver Water. We believe this is a model for the future going to other cities like the LA's, like the Nevada's that depend on the water from Colorado to see if they can also contribute to the management of our national forest by helping provide some additional revenue and opportunities to do greater treatment under a, a more expedited fashion. And so Rick is working on that. Uh, in addition to that, we're not just trying to have partnerships with water providers, but with ski areas, when we talk about power companies, uh, all kind of corporate entities that rely upon and depend upon our national forest to provide the services that uh, they provide to customers, we're trying to find those nexus we're trying to find those connections and see if there are other opportunities to uh, partner up and make a difference on the land. Decreasing catastrophic wildfires. This is really important for us. Um, you know, these the three fires that I mentioned, the Buffalo Creek, the Hayman, the Four Mile, all of them cause significant uh, damage for lives, for property and for communities. When you look at uh, the Boulder fire alone, the four mile fire, the cost of suppressing that fire over a week period of time cost $10 million just for about a six, seven day period. But the property damage associated with that, insurance providers are telling us that it cost uh, $217 million worth of damage in those particular areas. If you really look at the terrain, you look at the situation that was going on there, the things that we love, the way the communities were situated, um, you know, a lot of vegetation there, you know, thick forest. Um, but it's important that we think about how we try to provide for protections around our communities. Working with insurance companies may be another partnership that we can engage in. If people practice firewise practices, which says you build with the right kind of material, you create the kind of landscaping across your property that further mitigates these things. Maybe the insurance companies can say there's a benefit to us working with the Forest Service as well to lower our risk, but at the same time uh, provide for greater protection for life, property, and the other values of a community. And it's important that we do this because in this area, the, the, the sedimentation problems, the erosion factors that we have here, I think are are paramount and vegetation doesn't grow here in this part of the country very fast. It takes a very long time for that to develop. And so to, to be able to be proactive and prevent those things from happening, I think is very important. This is a, an example of a firewise situation. It's not the most attractive, 
but this this home is actually pretty well protected. You know, they could probably survive a pretty good fire. Uh, but you know, you got a lot of rocks out there. <laughs> I mean, I know it's not the most aesthetically pleasing, but uh, they would probably survive. And I uh, also understand that they build with material that is more fire resistant, and that is also equally important because, as you know, it's not just about uh, vegetation being close to the house, but fires have these embers that they throw oftentimes, and you know, having that uh, added degree of protection is important. And so, what we're doing on those things too, with our state forestry arm, we work closely with the state of um, Colorado, Colorado Forest Service. Uh, we have a granting process that we work directly with them, and they work with private landowners to help them be informed about how they can do this. They make grants available as well so that people can utilize that and really uh, be able to do this same thing on their property. The other thing that we're doing is creating these things that we call community wildfire protection programs that really you look at a community and you identify where you have your highest risk, and then the community works in conjunction with trying to do those treatments on the ground, and then at the same time, the Forest Service, where we have adjacent land ownership, we try to do equal treatments because, as you might know, I'm sure you do, that fire knows no boundary, much like bark beetles know no boundaries. And so when a fire comes through, it's not going to say, oh, that's Forest Service, that's private land. And so it's important that we treat uh, the land on a landscape scale so that we have the greatest opportunity to provide for the protections that we're looking for. So... I want to now talk a little bit more about bark beetle, and I think that's probably the crux of the discussion tonight. Uh, we have over 3.6 million acres of dead lodgepole pine that has been killed by bark beetles. It's primarily on three of our units that we call the bark beetle theater. Uh, that includes the Arapahoe Roosevelt National Forest. It includes the White River National Forest and um, the Medicine Bowl National Forest. Those three units comprise most of where this acreage is, and there's some private land mixed in there, state and private land that's mixed in there as well. But it's a dramatic change, a dramatic change to our, our forest uh, to see. I know if you've driven these areas and you've been in these communities, you've seen the devastating effects that the bark beetle have had on, on the land. And I guess the first thing that I would say is that it's so dramatic that we're probably not going to see that forest again in our lifetime. Your children may not see it in their lifetime, and it's possible that your grandchildren won't see the forest that you were accustomed to. It takes that long to change, and the forest that comes back may very well be a different species type. And I think that's something that we have to um, grapple with and, and see how much we want to intervene and uh, have active management on the land. This is really a description of the work that we are planning to do related to the bark beetle. This is the full size up of the work that we've identified. <clears throat> the first thing I'll tell you here about all of this acreage is that it's a small percentage of it. We've elected to put our efforts into the places where people are and where the interaction is, around communities that need to be protected, uh, over 200,000 acres of protection for what we call the wildland urban interface, uh, our campgrounds, our roads, our trails, our recreation sites. 
of where we're putting our attention. But it's a very small fraction. This does not speak to doing work in what some people are, are calling the general forested management areas uh, or the back country. This is not that. This is only where we know that we have a lot of human interface. But that's when you're trying to balance out using your resources and what you really can effectively do and what's most important. That's the decision that we've made to date uh, in dealing with that. So what does that mean as well? It means that right now all we're working on is mitigation. We don't want trees to fall on people and kill them when they're recreating on the national forest. We don't want communities to be destroyed because of catastrophic wildfires. That's what we're working on. Not very much else right now. And so the second phase of this, and a lot of this is dependent on resource availability, again, going back to the social license, what our publics want us to do uh, in managing in that larger area. That is yet to be determined. We're still collaborating with uh, local communities uh, to find out exactly what extent of work needs to be done in those general forested areas or in the back country. And that is still something that we're gonna have to grapple with as we continue to move forward. <clears throat> this is, you, you may have heard or seen a lot of press here recently about monies that we received. It was a number uh, of $40 million that we received in 2010 for work to specifically deal with bark beetle. Um, and what I wanted to display here is what work we got done last year and the year before, because just over the last few years, we started getting some supplemental funding uh, above those dollars that we typically get. <clears throat> in 2009 particularly, our congressional delegation gave us some additional supplemental funding that was utilized at that time, which really amounted to about $13 million to treat uh, this issue on national forest system land and another $13 million to treat work on state and private land. So just not the green, but again, that landscape mat uh, scale is what we were trying to achieve. So we had about 26 million, uh, again, split half and half for treatments on forest, green forest land and then on state and private. Last year, we got $40 million of appropriated dollars, not congressional earmarked supplementals above that, but uh, the agency, the department, uh, went through a reprioritizing of dollars and we committed $40 million uh, to the effort as well. And so this is a, a depiction of the work that has been done over those last few years. And as you can see, it's the roads, it's the trails, it's the wooey, it's where we have the greatest human interaction with our national forest. And this is what I was just mentioning to you. The $40 million, $28 million of that 20, uh, 28 of the $40 million really went to um, Northern Colorado. The other portion went to Southern Wyoming because the epidemic is really Colorado wide and Southern part of Wyoming and that's what the difference is. <clears throat> as we move into 2011, as you know, we're working up under what they call a continuing resolution. Uh, that means Congress has not passed a budget as of yet, so we certainly don't know exactly what our final commitment for budgets is going to be uh, in 2011. But we needed to continue to do work. 
with the $40 million, we forward funded and got a lot of planning work done so that we could do a lot of work in 2011. And even with the dollars that were normally appropriated, you get a portion of your budget, even in these continual resolution times, that 10 million of that we've already committed to doing BART be the work without knowing what the final budget is gonna be. And we'll ultimately find out what that's gonna be, but we needed to continue to do some critical work and we've already started uh, doing that work with 10 million of our, what we know to be our existing funds. The capacity that we have in 2011 is laid out here. We can do another almost 20,000 acres of treatments around communities that wildland urban interface. We can do another 415 miles of hazard tree removal around our trails. Uh, we can do 500 miles of hazard tree removal along the roads, which is critically important for our egress and ingress, firefighters getting in and out of communities, folks in communities getting in and out under certain situations. It's critical that we keep these roads open. But in addition to that, when you have such large devastation, these treatments for threatened endangered species is important too so that we keep um, noxious weeds from getting in there and, 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 and developing a different type of forest. So we, we go in and do treatments as well. And then, um, you know, 80,000 CCF of timber actually sold is important. That's a treatment factor that we need to be uh, mindful of. We need to go in there and actually do some timber sales as well. And then along our uh, developed campgrounds as well, we need to do about 260. And we have the capacity to do all this work, depending on what the ultimate budgets are going to be. It will uh, dictate how much of that work we actually get done. And so people ask, is this natural? How did it occur? Is this a one-time event? I just believe we had a number of things that lined up this time around. And I'm not saying, and I, you know, I'm not that old, so I don't know very much about, you know, 200 and 300 years ago. But um, I think that what we had is a, a even age forest that was more than 130 years old. We had drier conditions than we've normally had. Uh, we had warmer temperatures than we normally had, which in the mountains, especially with these bark beetles. If it gets cold enough, it knocks them back. It doesn't kill them all off, but they don't get to run their course. They don't get the head of steam, if you will. They don't get as aggressive. And so the situation would be a lot more manageable. But I think we had all of those factors to line up. Again, the weather was warmer, <clears throat> drier temperatures. We had um, uh, wildfires to come through as well that weakened trees and uh, created more susceptible conditions. And so that is what we deem to be the perfect storm. And so I, I wanna take you through this presentation and I'll have to click, it's gonna take us from 96 to 2009. We're still doing area surveys to come up with the 2010 uh, data as well. So you only have this up through 2009. Uh, and then it's not the most it's, let me just say this, it's a, a general depiction, so it's not down to the, the nth degree, but I think it gives you a good example of uh, the spread of this. 2,098, 99, 2,000. And all the red is the mountain pine beetle, and then the blue is the spruce beetle. 
And so that is what we're facing now. I mean, it is um, 180 miles north to south, and it's 140 miles east to west, a significant amount of impact. Now, north to south, 180 miles, and 140 east to west. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing on the ground, we've been doing it with hand crews here. Um, and we are finding that the conditions on the ground are changing so rapidly that we may have to change our mode of operation. This really is a mechanized fuel treatment. You know, you're in a canopy. If you're out there treating this fuel, if a tree did fall, it'll fall on this piece of equipment and people can be safe. They won't die. We've been doing a lot of this work with our crews hand cutting a lot of this stuff and falling it. But now we're facing, and this is a very conservative number, 100,000 trees a day are falling amongst those 3.6 million acres of dead trees. And that's a very, very conservative number, 100,000 trees a day. We have experienced our hand crews going in, clearing trails, clearing roads, they go in one way to clear the roads and the trails, and on their way back out, trees have fallen again that uh, prevent their uh, leaving that area without removing those trees again. The other thing that this causes for us uh, when we think about safety concerns is the jackstraw nature that we're experiencing on the ground is really going to affect what we can do on the ground. How much can we really do without putting people's in, people in harm's way? How do we fight fires in that situation? Uh, to put firefighters into a situation like that where they can't move freely is a very dangerous proposition and is one we're not likely to risk. Air tankers often are requested when we have major fires. In these jack straw conditions, it's not the most effective way to treat a fire. So just those two examples, you know, will create something different than what we are accustomed to. The way we fight fires in this condition will be a lot different. We're able to really, on the initial attack, be able to put out most of our fires 98% of the time within the first day. And they don't grow to be very large. But I think like the Boulder example and conditions like that may put us in a place that we cannot have that success rate on the initial attack and we're not going to put ground, we're not going to be able to use a combined method of ground troops on the ground and aerial attack which is the most effective. So that means fires are probably going to be left to grow larger because we're going to have to make decisions about how can we safely fight this fire and that means that we're going to have to pull back in some instances and take a much more conservative approach and that really <clears throat> it oftentimes comes with a lot of uh, concern from the public. Are you doing absolutely everything that you can do to protect our homes, our property, and so forth? And we're going to have to balance that out, and we're going to go through a process of trying to make sure that we inform our publics, engage them on a regular basis, work with them to provide for a, a community protection, do work on the ground like in these wooly areas so that we are proactive and that when the fires come we've already created conditions that are better for us. Uh, without that we're going to really be left with very limited decision space about how we treat those fires and it may not be that pleasant. Air quality is really important. 
in this part of the country uh, and putting prescribed fire back on the land when the conditions are right may be another mitigating factor that we need to do more of than what we've historically done because the alternative is not to do it and then when conditions are right for a major fire the kind of emissions that we're going to get from one of these high intensity fires is going to be far worse than what would have been the case when we could have controlled the conditions that goes back again to the things that I was talking about about let's talk about what we want to do what's important to us and we need to make those decisions up front because that there are times that our decision space is going to be limited proactivity I think is critically important and then when we talk about our wood industry, I don't know if most of you know, but here in the five states that we manage, we only have two medium to large size mills. Uh, one is in South Dakota and one is in uh, Colorado. But the one in Colorado is currently in what we call receivership, which is a, a, a different terminology, but similar to a bankruptcy situation. We have a lot of mom and pop smaller operations that really can still get logs to meals and things of that sort, but they've depended on these large meals as outlet for products that they produce, or they're not able to operate on the scale and the magnitude that we need to really treat this problem. And so I think that you know a lot of this has to do with um, how we've managed our forest over time, in that we have not you know really done a lot in the way of major thinning projects, major timber sales that are not intended for commercial harvest alone, but were intended for forest health uh, management opportunities. And we haven't done a lot of that. And as a result, and with the market changing conditions that we've been facing, when you add those things together, our industries are suffering. Uh, you hear a lot of talk about bioenergy, biomass, and all of those opportunities. Those emerging industries, the things that have really penciled out, if you will, the things that really have made sense financially, have been cogeneration facilities to date. So you have to take an existing infrastructure, you add another component where they can uh, generate heat and power on that facility. Those are the things that have been beneficial and have proven to be financially uh, possible. Some of the more the other types of emerging industries uh, haven't really proven to be financially advantageous. But if you uh, have really paid attention to our, here in the state of Colorado, uh, the state legislature, they have passed many pieces of legislation to incentivize the development of alternative means to utilize wood here in the state. And I say that just to say that whatever we're gonna do and as we move forward, uh, I think it's important that we have a very diverse wood product industry that includes saw logs, you know, other things like pellet mills. Uh, you know, they're using products for bedding, for other heating opportunities. We just need to put ourselves in a situation where we have a diverse wood industry market so we can take full advantage of the full utilization of wood, you know, from the bottom to the top and right now we're not in that position and I think it's further hampered by the current condition of our, our, our market so I just say that this is a, a valuable tool for us 
as resource managers, and that is uh, having an industry where we have an outlet because the reality, and you may have seen this firsthand, we're cutting a lot of wood now, but we're cutting it and stacking it. It's sitting on the side of roads. It's being cut, lopped and scattered, and scattered throughout the forest. And as we do that on a, a continuous basis, uh, the few conditions on the ground are going to continue to accumulate. We really need to have that product removed, uh, the high percentage of it removed, so that we can change the few condition classes on the ground, so that we don't have these catastrophic wildfires. We need to get it off the ground so it's not incubators for other insect and disease to continue to be promoted. We need to have the opportunities to do that work, and without it, uh, we're, we're really left without a tool to move that stuff off of the land. And it's, you know, if you drive any of our national forests here recently, particularly the three that I talked about, you will see logs stacked and decked all over uh, this state and southern Wyoming. And so uh, this is the maroon bell, the iconic maroon bell. Uh, I want to really turn it over to Jan now. I know she's been patiently waiting to discuss the specifics of the White River National Forest. I tried to give you an overview and the work that I highlighted here that is to be done on those three units that are affected by bark beetle. The White River was one of the subjects of this discussion tonight, uh, and Jan is going to drill down a little bit more specifically to talk about the exact work that's being done on the White River National Forest. And so, Jan, if you'll just come on up to talk about those challenges, I would greatly appreciate it. I just can't tell you how many ways you've stolen my thunder tonight. This is like the third PowerPoint presentation I put together because every time we got together, he's like, oh, I like that slide. Guys need a minute to stretch? Oh, never mind. <laughs> I'm going to try and drill down a little bit and talk specifically to um, the White River National Forest. I've been on the White River since uh, October of 2005. I came out of the regional office where I had worked as the uh, uh, National Fire Plan uh, civiculturist. Um, and as is true of all ecology, um, everything's connected. So. Let's see if we can get this thing to resume or not. I think we have a mechanical issue here. Ah, there we go. Um, as I was reading through the material uh, that was circulated um, about this series this year, um, I was taken by several of the points that, uh, that, that were projected as being the, the meat of this series uh, on the state of the Rockies. And so I'm going to try and touch on each of them, but down at a, at a scale that's actually from an implementation standpoint. 
natural cycles of tree birth, maturity? Have we really disrupted things by humans? Is it, is it uh, um, irretrievable? Um, we have a century of aversion to wildfire. Has that had an effect on our forests at this point in time? Um, who's responsible for it? Um, can we do anything about the state of our dying forests at this particular point in time? Um, what can we do to make them less prone to fire? Uh, where are the resources to be found? Tony spoke a great deal about resources. Uh, in general, it all comes down to money, but we, we do normally talk about about people, economies, and then of course the cash to make things roll. Uh, and then last but not least, are we learning anything from this? So with that, I want to dive in just a little bit about just a primer on forest ecology, because that really gets at some of the questions that folks have about why here and why now, and is this natural? And uh, so when you look at all of the different habitat conditions that we have in the Rocky Mountain West, it's pretty much uh, a, a, a scale of elevation and then um, precipitation and temperature. And in the case of lodgepole pine, which is the culprit at this point in time, you see that we're looking at uh, subalpine species. They're higher in elevation and they tend to be uh, more cold and wet regimes. Cone serotony uh, is um, a, a process that lodgepole pine are infamous for reproduction of seed. Um, the cones stay shut in general until uh, heat, usually from fire, will open those cones and drop seed to the ground. Uh, in general, it's a one-shot deal uh, when you do have fire. Um, we do have mixed serotony in our forests. Our forests are old enough at this point in time that it actually selects for more mixture of a normal cone that just goes ahead and open, and then you'll get some sort of seed bank that will accumulate on the, on the forest floor. Uh, in the case of this mountain pine beetle infestation, because of the amount of um, non-serotony and the sheer acres, we may be finding planting is going to be desirable, some sort of site prep to make sure that if you're going to plant those trees, that they actually survive. And um, maybe some control on some of the stocking densities in some areas. Lodgepole pine is known for being sun-loving or shade-intolerant. It uh, doesn't grow fast or well in shaded conditions. It has rapid early growth, uh, usually after a fire. How many here remember the Yellowstone fire? How many went up and took a look at it? How many have been back? There's babies all over the place, but they're really, really dense. That's very quick uh, habitation of, of the uh, site that's been opened up after fire. They grow in dense stands. That's normal. And they are shallow rooted. None of our subalpine cover types are what we would call wind firm. Uh, they grow interdependent. They grow even aged to begin with. And when you start mucking around in them, they have a tendency to fall apart or, or blow over. They're susceptible to mistletoe, uh, dwarf mistletoe, which probably accounts for more loss in wood fiber production annually than all of the timber that is harvested, harvested annually globally. Uh, and obviously mountain pine beetle. In general, on normal cycles of mountain pine beetle, uh, what they'll do is they'll rearrange the forest. 
um, by selectively thinning uh, trees that are large enough to, um, to, to handle the, the mountain pine beetle and support their um, accumulation of, of eggs for the next year's population. Um, certainly we're seeing a lot of rearrangement going on right now. If they're left without any grand disturbance, and this is all about disturbance, uh, everything that happens with our forests is disturbance driven, whether it's wildfire or it's wind throw or it's insects and disease, it's holes that are put in to the forest opening up different levels of light and uh, moisture availability. And generally speaking, we see that over time, as lodgepole will die out and create those gaps, if there's a seed source for spruce fir, we'll see those come in. Um, this is kind of moving towards that um, mosaic on the landscape that we associate with uh, old growth. Uh, and of course, the process is accelerated by mountain pine beetle. The question is, do you want to, or is there a need to be able to establish more lodgepole pine? And in these mixed stands, that can be a bit of a, of a challenge because they are shade intolerant. Uh, one thing about lodgepole pine is they have a kind of a marriage and they trade spots oftentimes with aspen. Over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of discussion about Colorado losing its aspen because it has succeeded to uh, lodgepole pine or spruce fir over time. I suspect we're going to see a lot more aspen on the landscape these days. How many folks have been up around Hayman after the burn? Lot of aspen, lot of aspen, kind of cool. Uh, by the same token, we may see more shrublands and grasslands. We hear a lot about climate change, and certainly we know that over the last five years or so, our growing seasons are longer. That is, springs come earlier, winters come later, and a greater portion of precipitation, at least on the White River, is falling in the form of rain. This can have the effect of um, favoring, if you will, more uh, deciduous broadleaf species of trees than conifer. Fire, the question about how do we deal with fire. In lodgepole pine, subalpine types, lodgepole pine and Engelmann spruce, subalpine fir, uh, the kinds of fire that you saw with Hayman is normal uh, in, in the subalpine terrains. So they are very large conflagrations. They are stand replacement fires. They don't happen very often. They happen every 100 to 500 years. When the fuel type gets contiguous enough and you get a period of drought and you'll get a lightning storm and then you'll get something like a Yellowstone. And Yellowstone, by the way, was burning in um, at dead lodgepole pine from mountain pine beetle. Um, there's a lot of conversation about whether our fire return interval is out of balance right now. I don't think so. We may have had um, a little different structure and landscape, but generally the, the mosaic that you see that hasn't been managed or hasn't had suppression over the last hundred years in lodgepole pine tends to be four or five hundred acre uh, patches. But certainly with um, fire suppression, some of the mining pre-settlement times, starting those fires, um, followed by a hundred years of fire suppression may have had some effect on fire mosaic. But in general, 
we have seen these infestations have happened before. Um, and I'm hoping that your two speakers that you had that talked about the last 6,000 years, you know, you can't just walk up to a logical pine forest and strike a match and get it to go. So even though our miners burn thousands and thousands of acres, and our Native Americans are infamous for having burned thousands and thousands of acres, you had to have a contiguous fuel bed in order for that to happen. I wonder how that happens. Again, distribution of age classes. I mean, what we're dealing with at this point in time in terms of bark beetle susceptibility. We can talk about climate, we can talk about drought, we can talk about whether it's been cold out, but the trump card is the brood material. You've gotta have enough trees out there that are susceptible to mountain pine beetle that are a hazard in order to ever get an infestation of this size. Certainly there are complicating and contributing factors, but you could have all the drought in the world but if you only had a thousand acres of trees that were big enough for mountain pine beetle to attack, that's all you'd ever have for an infestation. And the fact of the matter is that lodgepole pine grows in dense stands. Our lodgepole pine in the Rocky Mountain region averages about 130 years old. Those trees tend to have larger average diameters, and there's a direct correlation between the, the anatomic structure of a tree and its susceptibility to mountain pine beetle, and that's the thickness of the phloem, that gelatinous stuff underneath the bark. It has to be thick enough in order to hold bark beetle eggs, and smaller trees simply don't have a large enough phloem. Of course, a trigger like drought uh, has a tendency to move things on, and that's exactly what we've, what we've seen. Um, age of the lodgepole pine, this is actually uh, a bar chart from the Arapahoe Roosevelt, but it is consistent through the entire region. All of our forested cover types, about 95% of those acres are in mature age classes. So acres on the left, age on the right. So as you can see, we don't have any kind of age class diversity, so when you got a problem, you got a big problem. I throw this up here, it's a really busy map, um, but it, uh, the, the purple on it is um, kind of the amount of bark beetle activity through 2005. We did some analysis in 2005 to see how big this could really get, and it was pretty straightforward. It was just taking um, our vegetation inventories and, and trying to show how many acres and where they are of lodgepole pine and also spruce because uh, the spruce beetle is, is not far behind. Um, in terms of susceptibility for even age stands, older stands, dense stands, um, how big these infestations could get. And the green is how much bigger they could get. So um, it's pretty much everything. The only place you don't see the green or the purple is actually above timberline. So what are you going to do about it? Um, as you can see, we're all getting used to the gray out there. There's going to come a day when we're going to have to tell our kids that, no, honey, that's not normal. <laughs> you live here on the, on the front of the Pike San Isabel. If you do any recreating out your back door, you're probably used to um, um, 
uh, ponderosa pine and mixed conifer. And certainly since 2001, uh, with the National Fire Plan, and specifically after Buffalo Creek, there's just been this real headlong rush to do some thinning from below and to try and get um, those ladder fuels out from under. Because ponderosa pine has a distinctly different fire regime. It is supposed to be kind of low intensity with a high frequency. They're finding in time that you do have through, through natural history larger conflagrations, but in general, the thought is, given the thick bark on the, on, the, on the ponderosa pine, if you can thin it down and get it to this kind of a condition, then you can have an effect on uh, changing uh, fire characteristics across the landscape. Well, you can't really do that in lodgepole pine and in your subalpine types. They aren't wind firm. And if you get to the point where you've thinned it enough to make it a little more resistant to bark beetle infestations, you've made it much more um, open to wind throw. And for spruce beetle, wind throw is a trigger. So that doesn't get you where you need it to be. And this is exactly what we see happening. As a total aside, we are having huge issues with wind throw up on the forest that's aggravated by the mountain pine beetle. The take home message is while you're out recreating, two, assumption, two assumptions you shouldn't make. The first is that just because that trail's open means it's safe. No. And the second is, just because you've got live trees around you, the live trees won't fall down. But the tree has to be dead to fall down. Well, we have so much mortality in our forests now, it's as if we've thinned them. And the only thing catching the wind are the live trees. They're like a sail now. So we see, generally speaking, a lot more live trees blowing down than we do dead at this particular point in time. So how do you deal with this? Um, I had my first public meeting for this bark beetle infestation when I was on the Sulphur Ranger District of the Arapahoe up in Grand Lake in January of 1994. Um, it, it's, uh, it's not a new infestation and it took a long time to get it going. But um, in general, nothing has changed in terms of objectives. Uh, we're still trying to, to grapple with sustainable forests, and certainly 3.6 million acres um, of dead trees, it'll come back naturally um, within the context of human habitat. I don't know, that, that kind of bothers me. That doesn't, it's not sustainable in my lifetime. Um, reducing susceptibility to insects and disease. If all we ever do is chase dead trees, all we're going to ever do is chase dead trees. So Tony talks about social license. We've got to be a little more courageous about working with the live forests that we do have and trying to work to create conditions in at least some areas that provide a little more species diversity and God knows a little more age class diversity. And then reducing wildfire hazard and severity. Uh, particularly um, and specifically prioritizing those areas where wildfire just isn't acceptable. And that's your backyards, that's up in your municipal um, uh, watersheds. So we've been following this. We've, we've been integrating vegetation treatments uh, at the project level. Um, we have been picking areas that have a um, a, a high risk of success, first off, 
um, mostly behind people's homes. We try and deal with wildlife habitat, watershed issues, uh, defensible space, um, and be able to maximize on the opportunities of other kinds of vegetation like aspen to carry us into the future. Um, when we're all said and done, and we can throw hundreds of millions of dollars at this, and we probably will have treated less than 10% of the landscape for a variety of reasons, and probably we didn't need to treat everything anyways. I'm not so sure that our, on the White River, over 50% of our lands are in either roadless or wilderness. There's a public mandate there, and that is to let natural processes go. Um, but you need to buffer that to provide for public safety. And then boundaryless stuff. Um, we have great buy-in from our private landowners. We work hand-in-hand -hand with Colorado State Forest Service. Um, we have some new authorities, things like the Widen Amendment, where if we've got a private landowner who is treating a bunch of his land and he's got somebody on board that's willing to work more, we can actually pay to have that same person go across boundaries and amplify uh, the effects of those pieces of, uh, say, wildland urban interface treatments um, while they're there, so to speak. The very first thing that we did um, was to go through and do an analysis. In 2005, a consortium called the Colorado um, uh, Bark Beetle Coalition, which is a, a consortium of private landowners, federal land management agencies, state man land management agencies, and municipalities, got together to try and figure out how we're going to wrap something around and start moving forward. And the very first thing that we had to do was talk to what are our values at risk. Uh, you have to prioritize. You cannot treat every acre of 3.6 million. So they were obviously our communities, our ski areas. The White River has 11 world-class ski resorts. Um, we are the number one uh, forest in the United States in terms of user days. Uh, watershed conditions, um, we are starting to see some channel instability. Um, we do have, uh, we are participating in the agreement with the Denver Water Board. Uh, Dillon Reservoir is um, uh, a primary water source for uh, Denver, Colorado. Um, we've got a couple of reservoirs uh, as well that supply uh, uh, Colorado Springs. Um, habitat. You know, an awful lot of our threatened and endangered species rely on narrow niche habitats that tend to be older. Everybody likes old trees. We like old trees. Wildlife likes old trees. And beetles really like old trees. Um, the suitable timber base. Whether you agree with extracting timber out of national forest or not, I think we need to change our shift and we need to think of timber as our tool. Tony showed a picture of a, of a mechanical feller, and he talked about safety. There's economies of scale. Um, and absolutely by far the cheapest way to get a dead tree out of someone's backyard is on the back of a logging truck. But we've done a really swell job in the last 20 years of driving that industry into the ground. We need to start thinking of that as a tool, not a be-all in and of itself. Last but not least, is the wildfire risk and the pretension for loss. And that drives everything. Some things with habitat. Uh, loss of large areas of mature trees. We talked about lynx. 
Uh, mature logical pine forests are not the greatest habitat for lynx, but they serve as connectivity. And when you lose 3.6 million acres, and by the way, we are close to having the entire natural distribution of lodgepole pine infested as we speak at this point. It goes to connectivity and how these animals move across the landscape, and cover is the word. It's kind of like when you come out of the shower in the morning and you don't have a towel. How happy are you to prance across to your, you know, to another room, you know? It's, it's, it's not a happy time. Um, lynx habitat is, um, is going to be affected. Um, and last but not least, we entered into a, a, an administrative study with Rocky Mountain Research Station uh, to try and take a look at the loss of that much mature lodgepole pine plus all of the winter recreation that occurs to see if we can't come up with some idea about the effects that this will have on lynx habitat. With all of the foo about lynx, there hasn't been a single study done in Region 2 about lynx. It's all been north. Things that we have to deal with. Uh, we have on forest over a thousand miles of roads that look just like this. And you can't just cut it down and shove it off to the side of the road. If one of the things you're trying to do is reduce fuels, roadsides are one of your greatest areas for ignition potential. It's tossing that firecracker or that match out the window, and this is absolutely perfect for starting it up. Develop sites. We have 119 total number sites, not counting the ski areas. Um, this is actually a picture of a campground. Um, we had to clear cut all of the campgrounds around Lake Dillon. For 20 years, we've been saying, you need to manage the, the vegetation in those campgrounds. But it just never seemed very expedient, because after all, who wants, to, who wants to camp in the middle of a timber sale? Well, now what we've got is somewhere on the order of 350 acres of absolutely no trees. Um, and that's going to be a trick to reforest that. hundreds of miles of power line. Um, and these folks are between a rock and a hard spot. Um, national security uh, requires that these lines be kept open and operational. Obviously, in the event of a, of a, of a fire, you, you have your main communication grid is at risk. Conversely, these uh, <coughs> power lines are known to arc. That's really unhandy with all these dead trees. Uh, by the way, this is on private land. We're looking at a bunch of different ways to be able to deal with this stuff, because most power lines, it's not like you can drive up, cut the logs down, and haul them out. I mean, they're all over the place. So what do you do with it? And we don't know. We're still trying to work through it. Spraying? How many here have trees they've sprayed? Yeah, it's not cheap. Um, and if you have economies of scale, it'll run about $10 a tree. Obviously, this is not something that you're going to do in general forest lands, and so we've been doing this routinely for the last 15 years, uh, and it is effective until things get really infested, and then all, uh, all, all bets are off. Um, I love this picture. This gentleman is fixing his bike underneath this tilting tree. Um, it's the same thing. If you go up to Dillon um, and you get on your mountain bike or you go hiking, there are dead trees 
everywhere. Please be careful. Um, and if, if we're out, um, this, I took this picture just as this tree fell. Uh, and that's one of my uh, reforestation specialists. And um, every time I went in the field this summer, I had to cut my way back out. So it is really happening. Obviously, please, if it's a windy day, go bowling. <laughs> Watershed impacts. You know, trees are straws. That's really what they are. They suck up water through the ground, and then they expel it through their needles, and um, that's part of the hydrologic cycle. When you lose a bunch of leaf area, then there's a hydrologic response. Um, we have this nifty little qualifier called an equivalent clear-cut acre. And this is just for trends. But generally speaking, after 75 years of research at uh, the Fraser Experimental Forest, um, they've developed these thresholds where you can expect some change in the hydrology in a specific area if you have 30% uh, of the acreage in that landscape uh, where you've lost the trees, um, either by logging or by mortality. So the stuff here that's in either orange or, um, or, or lighter orange uh, are areas that are affected by mountain pine beetle uh, that exceed the 30% threshold. We are replacing um, culverts as fast as we possibly can. Uh, we are finding uh, a good deal of additional um, runoff. We're finding soils are saturated later into the, into the year. This also exacerbates wind throw. You actually don't even really need a wind. They just lose, the roots lose their purchase in the soils and over they go. Already did that one. Ski area impacts. You would think that um, trees at a ski resort are mostly associated with um, being pretty. They separate trails. They separate the, the expert skiers from the beginning skiers. They protect the infrastructure from wind and they maintain the snow, keep it from wind scouring. Um, Breckenridge, Keystone, Arapahoe Basin, Copper Mountain, Aspen, Aspen Highlands, Snowmass, Buttermilk, it goes on and on and on. And an enormous amount of those ski resorts is lodgepole pine and they are dead. So that's uh, what's tourism, Recreation, the second economic basis uh, for the state, it has the effect to be economically crippling for these folks. Last but not least, there's wildland urban interface. This is the Vale Valley. This is my twofer photo. This is actually Vale Resort. But the other problem is, is that the ski resorts don't know anything about veg management, and they sure don't know logging. Um, but we spent a tremendous amount of money in the Vale Valley. Um, most of it you can't even tell. It just looks like there's a lot of aspen. But we've been spending uh, about the last 10 years trying to build basically a, a bathtub ring over the Vale Valley in aspen um, to try and, and protect it from, from wildfire in the future. There's anecdotal evidence that the last wildfire that, that blew up there about 130 years ago had embers that traveled two miles. So um, just trying to get a big bathtub ring um, and protect these folks. We're also doing some prescribed burning, but not in the lodgepole pine stands. 
Um, unfortunately, by the time you really get lodgepole pine going, you really can't get it stopped. So um, what we're trying to do is still bang some holes in the landscape to try and affect the, um, the rate of, of uh, dispersal of fire when it does occur. This is defensible space. I don't know if folks knew about uh, YMCA of the Rockies a couple of years ago. Um, this is a mountain pine beetle burn, but they had their defensible space and it ripped and it roared and it didn't bother any of their uh, structures. So <clears throat> on the White River, what have we done at this point? Um, this actually is a couple of years old, but these are the areas that the Colorado um, Bark Beetle Coalition had decided uh, in their community wildfire protection plans that we needed to treat in order to deal with the values at risk. And um, with the exception of um, these guys over here and then cash up above, um, we're done. We've got it all laid out. We're just uh, in the case of um, Lower Blue on Colorado 9, we're waiting for the money time. It's already enrolled. Outputs on the left-hand side is um, actually volume. Um, cubic feet is, is kind of a misnomer. Some folks understand um, uh, board feet. So if you take these numbers and you divide them in half, uh, that's how many board feet. When I came onto the forest in 2005, I think they'd managed to get rid of maybe a million board feet of salvage. Um, to date, we have um, managed to get well over 100 million board feet of dead lodgepole pine into decks. <laughs> some of it's on its way to a mill. Um, some of our local loggers are finding places to be able to take this stuff, but we have, at this point in time, somewhere between 500 and 700 decks of logs in Dillon looking for a place to go. We sold 3 million board feet of fuel wood personal use fuel wood permits this year. So if you're looking for firewood, come to Dillon. So in terms of accomplishments, this is just another, another thing on what we did with your money. We spent a tremendous amount of time. The White River took literally its entire workforce and turned it towards doing bark beetle implementation this year. Um, it wasn't without breaking a few backs, but um, um, we get a lot done, and there's a lot more to do. It's not the only infestation we have out there. Um, and this goes back to the comment that I made about 95% of our forested cover types in the Rocky Mountain region are in mature age classes. Insects and disease are how trees die. So if all of your trees are in mature age classes, we're going to continue to see these infestations take more and more and more. Um, so right now we have about 80,000 acres of aspen decline. Spruce beetle. The spruce beetle is back in the flat tops. Um, we also have it west of Carbondale and between Keystone and Arapaho Basin. Uh, if we can't get that stopped, it will take the rest of the trees that Keystone still has left. Doug fir. By the way, this is a poster child of what we don't want happening. Um, we don't have a lot of Douglas fir, but where we do have it, it's mature and it's infested. Um, we do have this nifty little anti-aggregating pheromone that is pretty good with repelling mountain or uh, Doug fir beetle. Uh, so this is probably the one thing that I'm not all that worried about. 
And then, of course, there's the pinyon juniper uh, woodlands that have a um, black stain root disease, uh, IPS, um, and it is a critical deer habitat. So what is the role of management? I'm wrapping this up. <laughs> Hello? We need to decide what we're going to manage for. This is thinking out. This is getting past the reactive stage. What do we want our landscapes to look like? We have to have objectives where you're just out there wandering around doing things that will probably give you unintended consequences. Do we want to plant additional lodgepole pine? Or do we want to do other species? And where? Can we get the public license to break up uh, these contiguous, even-aged, um, hom homogeneous stands across the landscape and try and bring in a little bit of diversity? <clears throat> and how do we manage all of this for, for integrated use, for multiple resource values? And how do we do this for the long term? So the lessons that we've learned, you can't just sit back for 30 or 40 or 50 years and let things go along um, because you will get significant insects and disease. I'm not advocating that we go out and we manage every last acre out there, but I do advocate that not to decide is still deciding. And we need to put some thought into what you want your lands to look like. Tony mentioned that um, how many generations will go by before we see forests like we've just lost. And to get to that mature lodgepole pine state, we're looking at about 150 years. So you won't see them again. Your children won't see them again. Maybe your children's children will see them. We'll see something. I, I mean, I don't want to give this grim thing that we're not going to have anything in the landscape. But the changes are very large and they're very real, and they're going to take longer than our ages. This is the Fraser Experimental Forest. Um, where you see green is where they have done experiments over the last 50 years. And um, it's a combination of younger age classes and different species of trees. And obviously, where they haven't done uh, any, they've got a, a, a real mixture of um, lodgepole pine and spruce beetle mortality. I just thought that was just an absolutely great photograph. So that's it, and I do thank you.